Hey everybody, welcome to Open Door Philosophy. Today we're ending our four-episode arc on an introduction to Eastern philosophy with this episode on an introduction to Hindu philosophy. With me today is the Ubermensch himself, the authentic Mr. Derek Parsons. Hello everyone. And also, straight out of Plato's Republic, the philosopher queen, the earthly form of Plato's ideal podcast host, Ms. Taylor Jones. Hey guys. And I'm the trolley car driver himself moderating this episode, Andrew Graziano. Before we get this car on the tracks, how are y'all doing today? Just trying to avoid this trolley car that's careening towards me. I'm great. So just as Taylor's spring break is ending, sadly, my spring break is just beginning. And it's wonderful. We're recording this a few weeks before publication, so all of that will be done and said. But last night, I attended the wedding of a very good friend of mine, and it was a beautiful time and lots of fun and dancing. And I embraced the Dionysus since we're going to pull out all this Nietzsche, since you got to identify me as the Ubermensch. Yes, I embraced the Dionysus last night. I left the Apollonian at home and had a wonderful time with friends and family and, and even a few former students. So, yeah, it was a good time. How about you, Taylor? Have you enjoyed your week? I have. It's been very relaxing. I got to spend a lot of time with my family. But now I have to go back to school. And, you know, I love school. However. School is school. School is hard. Oh, I did mean to tell you both. uh, The mulch pile is gone. So you both got out of that. Oh. I was was in the night moving it around. (laughs) Oh, you were? You should have moved more. <laughs> I don't want to be critical of your job, but uh, yeah, it was, it was still quite the pile yesterday morning. <laughs> How are you, Andrew? Uh, I'm very tired. So I forget if I said this on the last episode. I was telling Taylor earlier about this weekend. Ever since Thursday, I've been at Texas's state debate competition judging. Mm-hmm. Uh, luckily hired out, so made a few extra piles of dough not really but it probably it, it a lot nice. yeah <laughs> it, it was i guess nice i don't know it was tiring but it's it's always cool to see high school students getting into philosophy i think it's like a great gateway um so that was pretty cool heard a lot about uh <laughs> heard a lot about uh, utilitarianism this weekend uh, i always hear that's a pretty common topic at yeah. debate tournaments yeah, it's something, something like utilitarianism. But it was, it was good. Uh, it, it really, really great to see. Awesome. Well, if it pays like everything else in education, your pile of dough wasn't that high. Yeah, I think so. I was there for probably twelve hours a day, and I was actually working. Though I would say about three hours of those twelve hours, which kind of mm. was awful. Uh, so. Like, I guess by an hour of what I was doing, it was fine. It was like good. But by 12 hours, it was like, (laughs) I don't know. But it's not all about the money. Not all about the money. That's right. You're above that because you're, you have non-attachment. That's a, that's a Hindu joke. (laughs) You got to get with me. That's why. (laughs) That's what you get a high paying corporate attorney. That's right. Were, were we talking about this on the last episode or was this like a... No, we brought, I think it was last episode. 
Okay. You mentioned how you're going to be like a soulless attorney. We okay. talked about I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if we recorded. recorded it or not, but uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Anyways, um, <laughs> <laughs> speaking of soulless attorneys, actually, that doesn't sound good. Um, you should have said soulless eternities. You see, that would have been a proper dad joke. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I don't want to steal it now. So uh, I guess let's just jump into the episode. Let's do it. Like a disclaimer on before the beginning of every episode we've done so far, probably in this entire history of the show, we're not going to be uncovering everything uh we're just going to be laying kind of a foundational approach and especially so with hinduism it's very complex and complicated so please do not get upset if we do not cover everything but we at least hope to provide a good introduction there's something else i was gonna say but i don't remember oh i always like to plug this i've said this like six times on the show but Indian philosophy is so complicated itself that you can, like, there's actually specialized degrees about this in uh, graduate schools. Harvard has a PhD program just for Indian philosophy. So, uh, and it, it's like a six-year program, and that's that's pretty just crazy, in my opinion, because they have, like, you can... You could do a PhD in like Western philosophy itself, and and that's you know that's the other one they offer. So that's just showing you the broad scope of Indian philosophy as a whole, uh, which is certainly not just Hinduism itself. And since we're ending this uh, series on Eastern philosophy, we just wanted to let you know: no fear, the podcast is not ending. We are going to, for our next episode, be doing our yearly birthday. <laughs> Or death day. I always forget episode. Birthday. Birthday. Great. Yes. Doing, that's that's a lot less bleak. Yeah. So we're doing our birthday episode of Marcus Aurelius. So this is Ooh. going to be Taylor's first time, I think, joining us for that, which is very exciting. It's going to be a great celebration. It will. But before all of that fun stuff, Mr. Parsons, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how Hinduism began? So, like you said, Andrew, this is one of the most complex and complicated philosophies and religions that we have looked at over the last couple of weeks. It is probably the oldest cohesive religion in the world. Some people will say it began as far back as 10,000 years ago. and uh, But mm-hmm. because of all that, the, the origins of Hinduism, the philosophy and faith that we call Hinduism... It's just not clear because, like, can you imagine 6,000 to 10,000 years of a particular explanation of why the universe is the way it is and how that evolves and morphs over time? Yeah, it evolved over thousands of years through uh, all your usual sort of gateways, right? Cultural, social, and historical factors. But what we can say is that it began in the Indus Valley civilization. So if you're familiar with the Indian subcontinent, that's going to be to the North Mm -hmm. and you might be familiar. You might not with something called the Aryan invasion, which is when peoples of the Northern Indus Valley civilization moved down into the Indian subcontinent. And when those two cultures mixed, both cultures kind of had their religious view and you kind of put all those together over a couple thousand years and you end up with something we call Hinduism. 
So what historians identify as Hinduism began roughly between 2600 and 1900 BCE. So way older than anything we've looked at before. And there's a period of history called the Vedic period, which is when the Vedas were written, which is some of their holy scriptures. It's their oldest holy scriptures. And no one's really sure exactly when that began and when it ended. But the Vedas were be- were compiled as early as 1500 BCE and were certainly compiled or rather finished by the time we get to 500 BCE. So the Vedas, and that probably is our next topic, but the Vedas are, are their holy scripture and it is considered the oldest scripture in the world. Great. So I'll pass this next one to you. For someone who's not familiar with the Vedas, the text itself, can you tell me a little bit about what they kind of like the, the format of them? Is it kind of like poetry? I, if I'm thinking even about like the Old Testament of the, of the Bible, just in comparison, mm-hmm. there's a lot of different formats in the way it's written. There's Psalms, uh, which is kind of like a poetry almost. And then there's more historical texts. So is it kind of in a culmination of a lot of different things like that? Or is it kind of standardized? Well, the Vedas are a very vast collection of texts. So to compare it to the Bible, we have the books of the Bible, but they're all collected into one volume for the most part. But the Vedas are many, many volumes, and they're not studied the same way that the Bible is because it's very personalized. And I think they're mostly poetry style. At least that was how uh, the copy of the Bhagavad Gita is that I read, but they also contain other things. So it's not just a text, but similar to the Old Testament, it has hymns and prayers and rituals that they follow. But yeah, I would think it's kind of a mix of things. From my what I've read, I read more poetry stuff. Can I ask you a you said that the the Vedas are very pers- personalized or personal uh, in in their study. Can you uh, kind mm-hmm. of elaborate what you mean about that? Yeah. So this is more from my experience when we took a field trip to the Hindu temple in Temple, Texas. One of the people had told us how the religion itself is be- very tailored to the individual, so you can choose what to study particularly because they believe that everything is part of one larger entity. So it doesn't matter necessarily what aspect you study because everything ultimately points towards Brahman. And I think we may get to this more, but it just all comes back to one idea. So each individual and each family or village can worship a specific god or read a specific section of the Vedas and still be practicing the Hindu religion because they're ultimately worshiping Brahman. Great. I don't know if that answers your question. No, I think that that definitely does. And and that, yeah, let's, when we talk about Brahman later, let's, I think that kind of brings some, some very interesting philosophical points behind it too. Mr. Parsons, can you tell me a little bit more about how you, you, I think you said that these were orally passed down um, mm. originally. Can you tell me how they kind of became a collection or, or who was passing these down? I think that's kind of important from, a, you know, who was pa- who, who were the people who were learning these and passing yeah. them down is, is kind of important, right? So 
Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I mean, it's so far back and it's mired in such mystery. We don't really know who. And what's interesting, if you compare this to, say, some of the other Western religions um, or even even these Eastern traditions we've looked at, there's no one person, right? There's there's no Jesus. There's no Moses. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no there's no Lao Tzu. There's no Siddhartha. So that kind of makes the origins of the Hinduism a, a bit interesting. But, you know, to to answer your question, I guess, more specifically, but in a super vague way, <laughs> this is kind of how all significant ancient texts begin, whether we're talking about epics like Gilgamesh or the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, or we're talking about scripture, like with Hinduism, it all begins in oral tradition. And then at some point, someone comes along and writes it down, or multiple people come along and write it down. That's the same way with the Bible as well. These were all based on oral traditions. And these stories were passed down from person to person, tribe to tribe. And they just take form and shape over centuries uh, until they're codified in some sort of way. Well, we also see the same thing with ancient law. Those are eventually written down and codified. So in that way, it's similar to really any origin of, of an ancient text is, is that it begins in that way. Um, what's interesting about this particular uh, scripture is just the age of it and how old it is. So I didn't really quite answer your question. <laughs> it's okay. But that's, uh, I think, I think that's a pretty good explanation of how it came about. No, I, th- I think, I think for sure. I keep forgetting if you're mentioning things, my memory is not great in the morning, but the word Veda in, in, I believe these, when they were first written down, they were written down in a very old version of Sanskrit. And um, Veda, the word Veda just means knowledge in Sanskrit. And interestingly enough, I'm pretty sure that Sanskrit and ancient Greek are descended from the same uh, language tree, which I think is pretty cool. And they're both uh, proto-Indo-European languages, so they, Mm -hmm. they share some similarities. Something that I was always taught when we were vaguely studying Hinduism in, in high school was this idea of social organization. So, Taylor, can you tell me a little bit more mm-hmm. about this, I think, very famous and maybe misrepresented caste system? Yeah. So, historically, I think looking back, it's easy to point out the caste system, but I think I, I should mention that present Hindu followers don't emphasize the caste system and they kind of write it off as to something that's not as strictly enforced as we see it historically, which I I think that's really interesting that they don't so much acknowledge that it's a current thing. I'm not sure if I'm explaining that the right way, but... So the caste system is similar to the traditional or the medieval European caste system. So you have at the top is Brahmins, and that's your priests and scholars. And then the next level down is Kshatriyas, which are warriors and rulers. And then Vaishyas, which are merchants and farmers. And that's where you also have your skilled workers and your landowners. And then Shudras are your laborers. There's kind of a, I'm guessing it's a, a, a Vedic, but there's a religious undertone to these caste systems too from, mm-hmm. from my research. There's a text called the Purusha Shukta 
that describes that the cosmic being is divided into four parts and out of each part, namely the head, the arms, the torso, and the legs, each of the varnas were formed, namely the brahmins, the kshatriyas, the vaishyas, and the shudras, respectively. That's interesting that there's this kind of religious undertone Mm -hmm. to it. I mean, and sure, like that makes perfect sense. Why wouldn't you base your social order off of your metaphysical belief system? Oh, for sure. I mean, it mm-hmm. it, it lends immediate legitimacy to how you've structured your society. Mm-hmm. I mean, like if we think back, say, to Plato's Republic and his whole idea of, of philosopher kings and all of this sort of stuff, the, the thing that it lacks is authority, right? This is, this is something Plato's come up with. And sure, it's based on the forms and it makes sense. But when you can imbue that system with religious undertones, I mean, then it takes on a spiritual significance. And uh, it's a lot more difficult to question those types of things when you have that type of authority backing it up. Taylor, do you have anything you want to add to that? I think we could also add that as you progress through your journey to enlightenment, you can increase your time, you can move up through subsequent lifetimes. And that's where we get the idea of reincarnation. Mm. Yeah, and to kind of wrap up this section, all of those types of things you're talking about, Taylor, developed during the, this Vedic period, which once again is, is so old. <laughs> I mean, compared to what we're used to in the West, which the Vedic period was roughly between 1500 BCE and 500 BCE. But during this Vedic period, that's when the caste system develops and other important Hindu concepts that we'll talk about later, like karma, dharma, moksha, and various philosophical and theological schools developed during this time as well. So that's why when historians look back at Hinduism and trying to trace its origins and how it developed, we say this Vedic period is significant because by the time we get to 500 BCE, all of these things that we associate with Hinduism are in place now, right? Caste system and these uh, karmic ideas and uh, nirvana and etc. So I'm a bit confused because... Taylor was saying that there's different Hindus study different things. And mm-hmm. you, were, you were just mentioning, Mr. Parsons, that there's uh, kind of things that there's things like karma and dharma and moksha and caste systems that they mm-hmm. all kind of agree on. So uh, if they're mm-hmm. all Hindus, then they must agree on some kind of foundational topics, right? So, right. Uh, Taylor, can you mm-hmm. tell us about some of these t- basic agreements or basic tenets of Hinduism Mm -hmm. that different Hindus might agree on? Mm -hmm. So one of the biggest ones would be the cycle of reincarnation, which is called Samsara. And that is that if you don't reach enlightenment by the end of your lifetime, you're reincarnated into a different body and you don't necessarily retain the memories, but you retain an essence of your being, which is a little bit difficult to specify because Hinduism is a monist philosophy. So it believes, they believe that everything is part of one entity. As you're reincarnated, your section of the larger one travels through different lifetimes in your pursuit of enlightenment. And once you reach enlightenment, that's when you reach moksha and you're reunified with the one. 
And that comes when you realize that everything is one. Smoksha enlightenment, when you reach in with the one? Yes, yeah. Yeah, moksha is the release from the cycle. Am I, am I right on that? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, the cycle rebirth. Andrew, you're probably best equipped to answer this particular question. When I think about reincarnation in the Hindu conception or the Buddhist conception, I also think of Plato. And yeah, for sure. Perhaps it's Phaedro. Could you say something about that? I think you're the one who knows it best of the three of us. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I don't really actually know too much about it, but... Oh, you're Plato so modest. Be- <laughs> um, so Plato did believe in kind of a theory of reincarnation that really came from not, not so much of Socrates, but of Pythagoras, who heavily believed in reincarnation. Plato also believed in kind of an individual soul. So your soul was mm-hmm. going to be, your soul was eternal and it would be, I think, kind of re-embodied uh, in his, his re-embodied in the sense that I believe a human, human soul would only go to a human soul. Uh, but I actually, that's not true. If you did something really bad, if you were a man and you did something really bad, then you might go to a woman and go to a woman's body. And then if you did something really, really bad, you would go to a, a animal species, like a cow, a horse. And if you did something really, really bad, you would kind of go down the totem pole from like a snake to something else. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's, it's kind of fluffy though, because I think as he goes on, very later on, this theory of reincarnation, I don't think he carries it out through all of his works. Um, I think, like, r- really later in his works. Yeah, I was gonna say it's an early. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a middle 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 early for Plato, a middle period in the Socratic dialogues. I think it disappears close to the to the laws or something. In that sense, maybe Plato's kind of messing with us. I don't know if he actually believes it or not, but it's all surrounded around virtue. Sure. Yeah, but it's the same. I. It's not the same idea, but it's the idea that our souls will, like, we're not done. Like, once the the death of our body, uh, we're not done on this mm-hmm. plane, right? Like, yeah, like we're like we're coming back in one way or another. It's interesting. So I'm going to pass this back to you, but in some sense, in Plato, there's like the, I get the sense that if you're reincarnated, and I kind of hate to use that word, I just because of the connotations, I think it mm-hmm. gives. No, I agree there. Yeah. If you're reincarnated, it's kind of like a punishment, right? Like it's, it's a punishment, especially if you're born as a, as anything other than a man. And so I'm curious if Hindus think the same thing, if you're reincarnated as a, if it's, you said something about a cycle. So Mm -hmm. if you're reincarnated as like a person again, what's the, is it a punishment is it if you're reincarnated, like if you don't reach enlightenment by the end of your life, is that something hard to do? Can you put the reincarnation cycle into some context? So the reincarnation cycle is dictated by karma. So what you do in one lifetime will impact you, not just within the lifetime, but in future lifetimes. And to reach enlightenment and escape the cycle of reincarnation, you have to have extreme devotion. And that doesn't necessarily happen within one lifetime. And it's not a bad thing to be reincarnated. But 
um, similar to how you were describing Plato's ideas of reincarnation, if you do really bad things, you can move down the caste system and be reincarnated into a worse position, but you can also be reincarnated into a better position. Interesting. Yeah, and, and reincarnation, it takes centuries, many, many lifetimes. Like this isn't a one-shot deal. Like you're a new soul and you're gonna hit reincarnate you're gonna you know, receive moksha in one lifetime. Not gonna happen. It is the cultivation of your soul over multiple lifetimes that can take thousands of years, which is why Buddhism was sort of this liberating or more egalitarian view of reincarnation, which was like you could become enlightened within a single lifetime because the cycle of rebirth is not terribly fun. And like, there's a reason it's called escape, (laughs) you know? So yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. And We've been talking a lot about karma, I think, in, in this system of afterlife uh, punishment and, re- and reward. But Taylor, you've alluded to it having some kind of impact on our daily lives in this kind of lifetime. Is that is that right? I'm not sure how the Hindu philosophy approaches karma within a single lifetime, but I know that there's the contemporary idea yeah. that what you do will come back to you in this specific lifetime in more of an immediate response. But I don't know how the Hindu philosophy approaches that. I think it's interesting because it's not so much caught up in woo-woo metaphysical stuff. Or at least what I read, which was associated with the Bhagavad Gita, was that karma is just cause and effect, right? Mm -hmm. This isn't like some god somewhere has a tally and there's pulling levers and making things happen in your life because you did or that did this or that it's cause and effect it's that good things create more good things and bad things create more bad mm-hmm. things and that there really there will just be actions that lead to other causes and effects based on the decisions you've already made so i know sort of in our western conception we're like haha karma is going to get you because <laughs> there's some like metaphysical cloud out there that's uh, orchestrating things but no, it's cause and effect. Good things lead to good things, and bad things lead to bad things. Hey, Andrew, did you know Ta- on Taylor Swift's latest album, she has a song called Karma? I did not. <laughs> would you like me to re- Would you like me to recite the chorus for you? I think that would be perfect. <laughs> I think that would bring you some bad karma. Oh no, it'd bring a good karma. I wonder if Taylor Swift has good karma. It's actually a pretty good description of karma, I think. But you know, hey, what do I know? The chorus. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Actually, when she describes karma, it makes me think more of the Tao. But, you know, maybe it's the same sort of thing. Maybe I'm thinking of the wrong part of the song. Oh, God. Okay, well, then let's just do it. All right. So, I didn't mean to (laughs) (laughs) So, karma is my boyfriend. Karma is a god. Karma is the breeze in my hair on the weekend. Karma is a relaxing thought. Aren't you envious that for you it's not? Sweet like honey, karma is a cat sitting in my lap because it loves me. Swinging like a goddamn acrobat, me and Karma vibe like that. That is the part I was thinking of. <laughs> yeah. So in a way, I'm just going to get all, here we go. So I'm going to justify all this. So in a way, since Karma all leads towards the one, Brahman, uh, and the Brahman is all things, then, uh, then Karma is, of course, your cat sitting on your lap. And Karma is the breeze in your hair on the weekend. Because karma is everywhere and in everything, as is Brahman. Yeah. Do you want to hear the bridge? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) 
Yeah. You know, we should have a Taylor Swift moment every single episode. It's just like, and now for the Taylor Swift commentary. <laughs> yeah. This, this, I must have done something bad. Mr. Parsons is quoting Taylor Swift lyrics to me. This is in response for me, like at the last minute, asking to move this episode up. I think it's it's Mm. doomed with Taylor Swift forever. Just kidding. I wouldn't call it doomed. This was a a regular philosophy class. I feel like we referenced her a lot senior year. (laughs) We did. We did. Oh man. Well, now we're completely derailed. See, cause and effect, man. Uh, speaking of violent Taylor Swift acts, can you please tell me a little bit more about Hinduism's principle of nonviolence, please? I mean, that'd be more associated with her reputation album, but let's go on. <laughs> uh, I guess the thing I can associate with it is is Mahatma Gandhi. Yes, his whole his entire movement was based on pacifism, right? And so and we also see that extended into Martin Luther King Jr.'s way that that they protested as well. You can think of the march on on Selma Bridge and how they're just hosed down uh with fire hoses and I remember reading or listening to Martin Luther King Jr. talking to everyone who's getting ready to do that march and he's like these are the things that are going to happen to us. We're going to get beat. We're going to get shouted at. We're going to get hosed down with fire hoses. And we all just have to be prepared for that. And we're not going to do anything about it. And it's the principle of nonviolence. And it had a, a huge impact, of course, uh, in how people viewed those particular movements. Because, because what people expect is violence and, uh, and to fight back. And when you just take it, I mean... You know, those videos and those photographs from both Gandhi and, and Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, have a great deal of impact. And if you want to go back, actually, Andrew, to last week when you talked about the Buddhist monk who lit himself on fire. It's a similar example, right, of, uh, of just, for lack of a better term, taking it rather than resisting. I think we should talk a little bit about the Bhagavad Gita. It's been brought up a few times. So Taylor, you said that you've you've read this. Can you tell first a little bit of an overview of the the story that kind of happens? Main, I guess, uh, give us a plot overview or a, a little summary. And can you tell us a little bit about it too, in in the sense of uh, historical or importance to the religion? Yeah. So the Bhagavad Gita is a conversation between Krishna. Right. And so there's a human man talking with one of the deities. Yeah. Lord Krishna. About what he's instructed to do. And the deity tells him that he needs to go fight for his family and lead this battle. And he doesn't want to go because at this point, his family has been divided into two halves and he'd be fighting against his own relatives And he doesn't want to do that. And it's this journey between him and the deity where they discuss the intricacies of the religion and how the metaphysic of the religion comes into being in the world and how it acts. And he's ultimately convinced to act and to fight on behalf of his family. Yeah. This was also written in Sanskrit to... It's a poem, 
originally written as a poem. Mm-hmm. It has 18 chapters. And I, I always think that the medium, the way it's written is kind of important whenever we look at a piece of philosophy too. One of my friends uh, who's Hindu gave me gave me this copy right before the pandemic started. And so I, I had it and I, I read through it in that time. And I thought it was really interesting mm-hmm. that the, I think Krishna was not like, wasn't he presented in the army or something? Like, wasn't he a kind of servant to uh, the prince or something? Or I don't, I don't know. Yeah. He was his charioteer. Right. So yeah, this is, uh, and he's mm-hmm. disguised right at the beginning. He doesn't let Arjuna, who's the who's our hero in this epic, he doesn't let Arjuna know that he's you know Krishna. Uh, he's certainly a, a wise person that uh, someone listens to, but a charioteer was not terribly high ranking in, mm-hmm. in in the military. And so here's Arjuna, the prince, and he's having this conversation with this charioteer of all people, right? And you know, it's like a total existential crisis for uh, for Arjuna. That's that's the whole crux of this thing. That's why we get to talk philosophy is because he's stuck in this this situation that he doesn't want to engage in. And so Krishna is there to you know, lend him guidance and wisdom on all kinds of things. Uh, it covers so many different topics, but but this is an epic in. Uh, as far as epics go, uh, as far as a literary genre, this falls right in with Gilgamesh and Beowulf and Iliad and the Odyssey, um, and it's it's a part of a larger epic. It's not it's not its own book. It's part part of an even larger epic called the. I'm going to do my best to pronounce this. It's part of the Mahabharata, which. Mm-hmm. Very similar. Uh, this looks like Hinduism just has lots of records. Oh. It has the oldest scripture. It also is considered the longest epic in the world. And so the Bhagavad Gita is one part of that epic. And I, I've heard it. I can't remember who I heard it from, but it's like it makes you could put the Iliad and the Odyssey together. And this epic is like 10 times longer than that. That's probably hyperbole. But, oh, it's huge. Huge. Jeez. Yeah. But it is like the most often referenced Hindu scripture and and it was written not really it was written for the common man and if you think about epics that's kind of who they were written for if you think about it but yeah it it it, it, uh, extols all these virtues and aspects of Hinduism you in a relatable way for the common reader common back then and here's a quote from these two guys who translated it recently about what the Gita is about from the Flood and Martin introduction, they say that the Gita considers questions about philosophical questions about, quote, who we are, how we should live our lives, and how should we act in the world. Yeah. Unquote. Absolutely. So it's it's pretty central, central questions to everyone. And it, it's also cool. I forget if we, we said what year this was written in. Well, no one's sure. The, the date range I have is somewhere between 400 BCE and 400 CE, so an 800-year range there. But yeah. Wow. And this was um, – and so it's – I think I think just as like a, a kind of almost anthropological way, it's, it's cool to see that people in 400 BCE or, or whenever this was written were also thinking about these, these similar questions in a context of – how they could best understand the world, even if you're not looking at it from a kind of religious religious way. There's there's definitely some kind of, I mean, Taylor, you, you definitely have studied this more than me, but 
it seems like there's definitely some uh, philosophical meat here. Oh, it's just packed with philosophical meat. I mean, <laughs> like this is why I think it's one of the great works of world wisdom. Everyone should read the Bhagavad Gita. It's incredible. And, and you're right, Andrew, it, it addresses these existential concerns that really a lot of epics address, right? So you can think of the Epic of Gilgamesh, which was written about 1500 years before Bhagavad Gita, which is around 2100 BCE is when Gilgamesh was compiled. And it asks the same questions. It's like, how should we live our lives? What is the best way to do that? What happens to us after we die? How should we prepare for death? All these types of questions, you see them over and over again in world literature. And, and frankly, a lot of the advice or the wisdom is, is the same, which I think is really cool too. But, uh, oh yeah, don't kid yourself. This is a philosophical treatise. It's not exactly as we think of a philosophical treatise in the West, where there's premises that lead to conclusions and justifications and all that sort of stuff, although it's in there, but it's written as an epic, so it reads very differently. I suppose if you want to make kind of a quasi-comparison uh, um, to the Bible, you could probably throw Job as an example of, of what this is. You know, Job has this terrible thing that occurs in his life, and three of his friends come along to console him. And basically Job is 40 chapters of Job and his three friends discussing all of these same types of issues. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Definitely. I remember when we read it, thinking about how similar it was to so many other philosophical works mm -hmm. and just how representative it was of the Eastern tradition and ideas of peace and harmony and both inner harmony and harmony with the larger society and i just really enjoyed it so i think it's definitely worth the read yeah there's a there's a lot in there that that i see crossover with there's things in there that reminds mm -hmm. me about the world of forms plato's concept of the world of forms but like you said taylor really representative of eastern philosophy as a whole there's you know it's all about non-attachment it's all about duality doesn't actually exist and how can we detach from the things that cause us pain and suffering, but at the, at the same time still carry out our duties in the world? Because, you know, you can't sit in a cave your entire life. So a lot of those common themes come up that we see in other Eastern religions as well. This is a really popular quote from the Gita. I've, online it says this is from this has a Sanskrit copy of it, so I'm assuming it's you know somewhat reliable or something. Uh, but this one says this is even most school children in India are familiar with this quote. It's uh, chapter two, verse forty-seven. You have a right to perform your prescribed duties, but you are not entitled to the fruits of your action. Never consider yourself to be the cause of the results of your activities, mm -hmm. nor be attached to inaction. And I thought that was just super interesting. This commentary says that a good acronym for this is not attached to outcome. And it gives this example of, of people who are playing golf. And usually when people play golf, they're super concerned about 
getting the ball in the hole or like the score at the end of the game. But if you just focused on, you know, just having the best shot or having a good time with the friends or whatever, it'd be a lot more fun uh, and you'd probably get a lot more out of it. So, so I, I thought this was a really one of my favorite. Yeah. Andrew, that comes from what, what I read uh, chapter two, 55 through 72, which yours oh, is right in the middle of that is it was a big section on non-attachment and it's also in the commentary i read said it was one of the most famous parts of the bhagavad gita that everyone just know like if you want it all summarized pretty briefly it's chapter 255 through 72 and what you read reminds me of something from the Tao Te Ching which so the Tao Te Ching or Taoism has a great emphasis on non-attachment of course and not being considered or not being concerned about the results of your actions so this is poem two from the Tao Te Ching it's the third stanza but it says therefore the wise go about doing nothing teaching no talking the 10,000 things rise and fall without cease creating yet not possessing working yet not taking credit work is done then forgotten therefore it lasts forever that's great yeah yeah really remind me of the idea of you know our, our actions are important but as far as attachment to the results of those actions we shouldn't be that concerned about them and they might have some to do with cause and effect right like if you do the right things you're going to get the right results largely that's mm-hmm. simplistic and probably even immature in a way but uh because things always don't work out exactly how they're supposed to. But yeah, it's cause and effect. It's either the case, because those are, are very similar. And, uh, you know, that's that seems to be kind of a common piece of wisdom in a lot of philosophies from around this time, too. Like in, in Western philosophy, which is what I'm trying to find, too. And so it's either, I mean, I think it's either the case that these different traditions are hinting on the same piece of like some piece of human wisdom that's shared in our nature or something that we're, we get really attached to these outcomes of things and that kind of makes us miserable mm-hmm. or there's also the possibility of some kind of trade interaction too, or maybe both. Well, I've got a question for you too, then on, on this point. So we've read in all of these Eastern traditions and we see it in the West too, especially with stoicism is this idea of non-attachment, right? And so, because the more we are attached to things, the more that creates suffering, even though we might be attached to something good, like this wedding I attended last night, which was wonderful, lots of great feelings about that. You know, there's an opposite to that, which is the wedding could have been a disaster. And then I feel terrible about the wedding and I had a horrible time. So it's attachment. Just, you know, we're, we're so, ha- we're fine with attachment when the, when the outcome is good, you know, uh, but, you gotta realize there's a there's a flip there's an opposite side to that, and that's why the Tao Te Ching talks all the time about the unity of opposites and how th- these two things always arise together, and it's our attachment to good or bad that causes us grief. So here's my question to you: All that sounds really great, peace and harmony, and and like you know, can, can you have peace? Can you have harmony, and still enjoy the things? of life. Does, does that make sense? Like get non-action, I get non-attachment, I get all of those things, but it feels like for me, what you end up with is yes, you're at peace, but what, what exactly is peace? Are we saying like peace is just like, how do you engage, but not care? Like, well, I, 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 so I guess it comes down to meaning, right? Like that, that wedding last yeah. night, right? Is yeah. meaningful because it was good. Right. Anyway, I don't know what y'all think. No, 
I think for me, the difference comes down to not being disconnected, but also not being consumed by superficial things. I think that when we get attached, just by our human nature, we go for what's most superficial a lot of times, and then we just get consumed by something so surface level. And I think about in the New Testament where Jesus talks about how it'd be easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven, that once we get a little bit of something that we just are consumed with accruing more, and that's when we fall into a problem, but there's a balance that we can find by being engaged with people, but n- still accepting like that there's something deeper to life and that we're, we shouldn't be consumed by what's on the surface, that we should be looking deeper. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. If we're attached to the right things, those are things that give us like happiness, mm-hmm. give us enjoyment, and not, not more of a superficial sense. And I'm thinking of things probably... I hate to use the word because I think it's important, but things like love, I think love is probably a big, big thing. So I'll just leave it at that. But these big concepts that are important to us beyond earthly kind of things probably add a lot of meaning to our life. But maybe there is something to this because, well, I I don't know. I've been really captivated by that idea of this this Buddhist monk that, that I talked about on this last episode who self-immolated because of a, a political, political, I guess, purpose. But it's said that when he lit himself on fire, he was in kind of like a kneeling posture, I believe, in a meditative posture. And it's said that he, while he was on fire, did, did not make a sound and just continued praying while everyone around him was, mm-hmm. uh, was screaming and crying. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's very powerful because I like I, I don't know who that guy was as a person, but and I don't know about his attachments to the world, but it really shows you something, right? Like that's that's a powerful image that's very very painful, and uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure he was very at peace with himself to to be able to undergo that amount of suffering. Yeah, yeah, it sticks with you, doesn't it? Yeah, when I think of non-attachment, I think of, and this is such a like a Western sort of thing to say, but uh, when I think of ultimately reaching the heights of non-attachment, what we're talking about is the negation of the self. In other words, the self is this veneer, right? This manifestation, as Taoism would say, that is like us, but it's not really the true us, that there's an essence, a, a true self, that it can be revealed once we get rid of all of our attachments. But in the Western conception of self, when we think about things that make us us, it's the things we do, it's the activities we engage ourselves in, it's the things that we associate our identity with. If we completely non-attach from all that at the like the most enlightened heights of non-attachment in the Western conception, it is the negation of the self. But that's the point, right? That's the point. We reach our true self. And I also kind of think of like, if we do want to stick Western, sort of like, Plato's conception of the forms. You know, we've now transcended this particular plane of senses, of the senses. And the Bhagavad Gita talks about this, the world of senses, mm-hmm. that there is a reality beyond that. And we can only get to that reality by becoming non-attached. And that makes me think of the world, the world of forms. 
like our true self is out there somewhere in the world of forms. And if we can get rid of all this mess, then we can, then we can come closer to that. I think a question that we've kind of alluded to in our past episodes is, is how for someone like, I think all three of us who doesn't practice Taoism, Hinduism, Buddhism, or Confucianism, how do we incorporate these elements into our lives? Or what, what do we think about these philosophies as, as ways of life, incorporating them? So uh, I think that's an important question to kind of think about. So Mr. Parsons, what do you think about this? What are some elements that you think we can pull from this, even if we're not taking it in kind of a, in a religious way? Yeah. So for me, I think you actually asked me in the Taoism episode, you're like, are you a Taoist? (laughs) And, uh, and I think I said something like, no, but I find many things in Taoism very helpful. Yeah. Um, and so I think about that in terms of all of these different philosophies that I study. So from these four, I suppose, and it's very associated with some Western values that I find very important as well is like uh, ideas of moderation, ideas of, of ego, and or letting go of the ego as much as possible. I think these are very helpful things in my life. And when I read these texts, it makes me think about those aspects of my particular life. And I'm like, am I caring too much about this or that? Is this thing that I want really that important for me to have? Does it really enrich my life in a way that I find meaningful or as I define as meaningful? And so those are kind of like in a very general way. Uh, Those are some of my takeaways from these four Oh, and structure. Structure is important. You know, I get that from Confucianism. So, yeah, yeah, it all creates a harmonious uh, society. Great. Taylor, what do you think? I really like the ideas of stillness that we get in Eastern philosophy because we don't see that as much in the West, that there's this fascination with doing a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't always bring us joy. A lot of times I think that makes us worse off because... We get distracted and we're just too busy. And I like that Eastern philosophy prioritizes leisure and stillness and taking a step back and like actually looking at what's going on around you. Mm-hmm. And I like the focus on nature because I think we can learn a lot from just natural processes. And then one last thing, we didn't get to it in this episode, but I like Hinduism's focus on unifying the spiritual aspect of the self with the body in terms of things like yoga. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a really important practice to relax the self and engage in a good way with your physical body. That's great. How about you, Andrew? I don't know. I think that there's, when I study these different philosophies, including, and this is not just limited to Eastern philosophy, but this is like, also goes with kind of this psychoanalytic philosophy that I'm trying to get into now and into some some Nietzsche stuff too. I think I find it really interesting to reflect on uh, human nature and why humans are thinking of of these mm-hmm. why humans are thinking of these things and why they're putting them in their philosophical texts. And it also means something on how they're seeing the world too, right? Like in in, uh, in medieval Europe, for instance, like these Catholics are thinking the body is, is super bad. And that goes back to Plato. Mm-hmm. They practice self-mortification. A lot of saints do that. 
uh, as, as you mentioned, Taylor, there's kind of an Eastern philosophy, this emphasis on body, spirit or something, unity with practices like yoga and meditation too. And in the uh, martial arts in China and Japan too. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And and so I think that's it's definitely interesting, at least from a cultural angle, if you're not going to buy it for religious reasons or even philosophical reasons. So I think that's been super, super cool. If you had to summarize our Eastern introduction to Eastern philosophy arc in a sentence, what's one thing that y'all would say about it? My one thing I think would actually be what Taylor said. <laughs> the idea of, of stillness and slowing down. <laughs> I think it's just so important. Taylor's totally right. We pack our lives filled with, with all kinds of things from the minute we get up to the minute we go to bed. And uh, it's important to stop and be still. And once we are, we can begin to see uh, parts of the world that we uh, just don't see otherwise because we're just constantly filling our brains full of stuff. For sure. Pick something different than what Mr. Parsons said to look outside of the self because we get too consumed with ourselves and what's going on in our heads that we we don't see other people. And I think Eastern philosophy emphasizes community in a way that Western philosophy and ideas don't. That's good. Um, I would just say it's it's very expansive. It's very difficult to juice down in, in four episodes complicated which is no surprise mm-hmm. that was kind of dumb but i think it's true no it is it's a massive field yeah i mean what we've done in four episodes here is uh, like you know scratching the surface isn't even really an yeah. accurate metaphor to use we've kind of like uh, maybe you know blown a little bit of dust off of the surface like whew, you know yeah it's just so it's so yeah. vast um Definitely. Yeah. I mean, you just think of topics even within Western philosophy is so vast. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, some people spend entire careers just on those areas of philosophy. And so yeah. we've taken a very, I think, a good look at Eastern philosophy, but mm-hmm. as introductory as it can come. For sure. Yeah. But that's okay. That's okay. Non attachment, man. Well, all right, everyone. We hope that you enjoyed this four-part series. Man, let us know how uh, what, what you thought of it. We had a good time doing it, exploring some things that we hadn't really explored before, or at least in this particular way. So uh, thanks for listening. We always appreciate you doing so. That's right. We would love to hear from you on your thoughts on Hinduism or the series, or even any ideas, things that you want us to talk about in future episodes. We would love to know. So please contact us on our socials on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or at our email at contact at opennorphphilosophy.com. That's right. And a weekly shout out to, I guess, I guess bi-weekly shout out to Kevin McLeod for the use of his groovy music and the intro and outro. Thank you very much for listening as well, both to the music and to the podcast. And remember when your life is in need of some philosophy, the door is always open. Pox. Peace. Namaste. And how terrible is this? Look, I've got a, I've got, I'm so dorked out today. I'm like drinking from my frozen mug and I've got a lost in the woods shirt on. This is just so bad. This is unfiltered Parsons. (laughs) Do all the philosophy that's in Disney movies. Well, okay. I, this is actually, (laughs) I really, I really don't do not like Disney.
Uh, you don't know why like disney the know. company or disney no, 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 movies or company it's yeah. just the, like the movies i just have never never like there's a few that i'm fine with but i've never been a fan what are the few that you're fine with uh i like the old is the old robin hood yeah i loved that movie yeah. when i was a kid yeah uh, i think one my fa- of, it's one of my favorites the like old cartoon one is super funny I think that's all. Oh, I mm. really like Aladdin. I think Aladdin's a really good movie. Oh, that's a good one. But that's from Disney's uh, uh, golden reboot phase or whatever you call it. <laughs> that started with Little Mermaid. The golden age. I'm not a big fan of that one, to be honest. Little Mermaid? Yeah. But it, yeah. Taylor's a big fan. Okay. I watched it all the time as a child. Yeah. I don't know. I just remember like... When we were in kindergarten and they would put on like a movie during nap time, I was just like kind of fed up. <laughs> You're I think fed I up. Just, I, I just frustrated kindergartner. <laughs> Damn these Disney <laughs> movies. I'm so sick of them. <laughs> I just actually learned this was a movie like two weeks ago, but the the is is the animated cartoon uh, Hobbit, is that from Disney? Oh god, no. No, but that is terrible. It is cited as one of the worst cartoons ever. <laughs> Mostly because just, of its horrible adaptation. I just I saw like a picture of it and I was like I, I did not even know this existed. It's awful. It whack. They whack. took the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy and made an hour no, probably like a forty minute cartoon out of it. Wait, out of the Lord of the Rings oh too? <laughs> yeah. What? Oh wait, no, it is just the Hobbit in it. They did a Lord of the Rings movie though. As well. Really? It was a follow up. That's yeah, because <laughs> those books are large, right? Like they're hundreds of pages. Pretty dense. Yeah, that's crazy. Coffee. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure I have a visual here for the sound. All right. <laughs> you're adding like yeah, you're adding sound effects. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, hey, let's do. Let's do a podcasty stuff. <laughs> Did you see this kind of weird intro? I wanted, I wanted to make sure you were fine with being called a Ubermensch, Mister Parsons, and sure, t- Taylor, philosopher queen. I hope is fine, but Ubermensch, I don't know. Yeah, that's fine. Taylor's a queen for sure. Uh, sure, I'm happy with being the Ubermensch. Yeah. <laughs> okay. With my Disney Frozen mug. <laughs> 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 I don't know what's going on. 